I heard about a guy that was flying over the over the holidays, and a guy came, you know, the pilot came on the speaker and said, "Ladies and gentlemen, one of our engines is out, but it's okay. We still have three engines, and we can make it, but it's going to slow us down. We'll be about an hour behind schedule." About thirty minutes later, he pilot came on again and said ladies and gentlemen I'm sorry to inform you we've lost a second engine but that's okay we still have two engines we can make it but we're going to be two more hours late a little while later pilot came on and said ladies and gentlemen I'm sorry to inform you we've lost a third engine but that's okay we still have one engine we can make it but we're going to be three more hours late the guy sitting in 17b turned to the guy in 17A and said, if we lose another engine, we'll be up here all day. <laughs> and somehow, I think he didn't recognize the problem that they had. He was mistaken. And you know, sometimes we have problems in life. I mean, we all face problems. But do we actually recognize and realize what the real problem is that we need to solve? Now, you know, as we go through life, we're going to have major problems and we're going to have minor problems. It's been my experience when you have a minor problem, you just make a few adjustments or sometimes you just ignore it and it goes away. But when you have a major problem, you have to do something. You have to work on it. You have to, you have to put some effort in to overcome that problem. Chuck Yeager, you may recognize the name, famous test pilot. I think he set a world speed record or something in flying jet airplanes. And Anyway... He was called and asked to check out an F-86 jet because there was a problem. It had crashed three or four times, lost three or four pilots, and they needed someone with experience to help them figure out what the problem was. So Jaeger, he's doing all kinds of trick moves in this plane, and it's working pretty good until he swooped down really low and turned upside down and was flying 150 feet off the ground upside down. Suddenly, as soon as he turned, he realized the aileron locked on the plane. That is a little flap that's on the wing that helps the plane maneuver. You know, you put one flap one way and, and it'll turn and you put the other flap up or whatever. And so these little flaps, this one flap locked on the plane. And he was upside down. Now luckily, Jaeger being experienced knew what to do to pull the jet up and he got it up to about 15,000 feet where he was safe and he did some maneuvers with the controls and got the flap unlocked, the aileron unlocked, and he was able to save the plane and land safely. But he figured out what the issue was. was the problem, but it was a symptom of the problem. And he figured out that that aileron locking is what caused the planes to crash. So he told the engineers they began to research and take the plane apart, and they figured out what the problem was. And it was a simple problem. There was a bolt in the aileron that had been installed wrong. You know, normally when you install a bolt, it goes down with the head up, and then you put the nut on the bottom. But on the plans for this particular plane, it called for the bolt to go upside down and the nut to go on top. So when they confronted the uh, person who assembled the jet, they asked him, why didn't you follow the instructions? Why didn't you put the bolt in from the bottom and put the nut on top? And the old worker had been there many years. He said, well, everybody knows a bolt is supposed to go in with the head on the top. 
And I've been around long enough to know that's the way it's supposed to be. But the problem was the way that was installed, it caused that aileron to hang up and the jet wouldn't work properly. It cost three or four people their lives because he didn't follow the instructions. You know, sometimes we get in trouble, we have problems because we don't follow the instructions, especially the Lord's instructions. And we don't seek to do what God wants us to do. So when there is a problem, though, you've got to recognize it. You've got to recognize and realize that there's a problem. And once you realize the problem, then you have to go to work to begin to fix things, to restore life back to what it was before you had the problem. We're going through this series, and we're calling this series Restore. And we're going to use the book of Nehemiah, because there's a place in the book of Nehemiah that shows us where Nehemiah helped the people, God's people, restore a broken down wall. And it was a wall that had been broken down for about 150 years. But Nehemiah and his leadership abilities got the people organized, motivated, and they restored the wall. And there's always something in our lives that need to be restored. So we're going to think about this. You know, how can we restore almost anything by applying the principles that we're going to see that Nehemiah applied in the Old Testament? Now, in our newsletter that came out today, there's some at the Welcome Center. Some of you get it electronically. There's a reading plan in there that you can follow along in the book of Nehemiah and will help you follow along with this series. We're going to read through chapter 1 today in this service. And then you can start on chapter 2 throughout the week and study that. And you'll be set for the sermon for next week. So, I want to raise a question. What do you do when you realize something needs restoring? You know, we've been through almost two years of COVID-19. And certainly after coming through that, there's a lot of things that need to be restored. There are businesses that are broken down. There are organizations that are broken. Schools, relationships, families, spiritual lives churches, all sorts of things. And really, we're going to apply this to our spiritual lives and to our church, but I want you to know that you can use these principles to restore almost anything. You know, a couple days ago, December the 20th, I looked at the Bristol Herald Courier newspaper, and there was an article in there. It was interesting. I usually read the obituaries about every day, make sure my name's not in there, or... Nobody that uh, they've listed me to do the funeral for. Because uh, believe it or not, that does happen from time to time. And so I was looking at the obituaries, and there was an article on that page. Across the U.S., houses of worship struggle to rebuild attendance. This article went on to chronicle the issues that a number of churches are having. Uh, one church talked about... Uh, during COVID-19, they had to be closed down in their state for seven months. And said when they opened back up, they only had about three people showing up for church each Sunday. Now, since that time, it says that they have uh, they've built back up a little bit, but they only have about half of what they had coming before COVID started. Before COVID, they were averaging 160, 170 people per Sunday poll taken by the Associated 
Associated Press and their NORC Center for Public Affairs says the research shows how dramatically church attendance has fell during the worst part of the pandemic. And many churches have not recovered from that uh, since, you know, we've gotten on through the pandemic. They also did part of the survey, and it shows that among evangelical Protestants, that is, Christian people in America, only 37% say that they're attending church. That's a problem. And the church needs to recognize that that's a problem. A new study out from Lifeway Research, a Christian organization, says that Protestant churches, uh, more churches closed in 2019 than opened. Again, that's a problem for the church. During 2019, there were about 4,500 churches that closed their doors. Only 3,000 new churches were started. Now contrast that with 2014, just five years before that, there were 4,000 new churches that opened and only 3,700 churches that closed. You might be surprised to know that every week in America, there are more than 75 churches that close their doors. Many of those because they're not concerned about attendance and spiritual growth of the people that do attend. So the church has a problem. And we are the church. You know, we have a bit of a problem ourselves. You know, since, uh, since COVID started, you know, before COVID, we were growing every week. Our attendance was rising. Since COVID, we have just barely over 50% of the people that we had coming to church before COVID. And we have a number of people that are watching online, and, and that's a good thing. But online is really for people who just can't be here, people who uh, maybe are homebound and they can't come, or somebody's on vacation. You know, really, we need to come together as the church every Sunday when we have services. So, the church has a problem. And that's something we need to look at. We go back to the story of Nehemiah and we think about the problem that he had. And we're going to dig in and see what was going on actually in the city of Jerusalem. So what do we do? Let's face it. God wants the church full. He didn't give us this nice building, these nice comfortable pews, so half of them would have people in them. He gave us this church because he wants the church full. So what do we do? You know, the church in a whole is in a need for restoring what we had before COVID. So let's look at Nehemiah. We're going to go to chapter 1 of the book of Nehemiah. It's the Old Testament book. Of course, Nehemiah was a Jewish. He was a descendant, but he lived in Persia. Now, you need to know a little bit of the background here before we get started. Uh, from 605 to 586 B.C., God was not happy with his people. And he warned them that he was going to allow uh, Babylon to overthrow them if they didn't straighten up, if they didn't get their spiritual lives in check. Well, they didn't, and God allowed Babylon to come in from 605 to 586 and just basically wreak havoc on Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, they broke down the walls, burned the gates of the city, and Jerusalem was no more. He took most of the people out of Jerusalem, took them back to Babylon where they were in exile for 70 years. Now, 
In 539, Persia overthrew Babylon. And when Persia did that, they were favorable toward the Jews. And they allowed some of the Jews to return to Jerusalem, which when they got back, the place was devastated, but they did manage to rebuild the temple. But that's as far as they got. They didn't do anything else. By 515, they had the temple rebuilt, but they weren't really following God's laws. They weren't really worshiping God the way He had called them to. And the city was in dire straits at that time. About 445 B.C., there was a man named Nehemiah who rose to some prominence in the kingdom of Persia. He was the cupbearer to the king. And Nehemiah, one day, met some people who had returned from Jerusalem, and he asked them about the city. And that's where we pick up the story. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Halkalah, in the month of Keslev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the providence, are in great trouble and distress. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. So I want us to think as we go through this passage about what it takes to restore something. And the first idea that we come up with is to recognize the real issue. You know, just a quick reading of this, you look at that and you say, well, the problem is the walls are broken down. That's not the problem. That's a symptom of the problem. Why are the walls still broken down? It's almost 150 years after those walls have been broken down. And the people have been there since 539. Here it is, five, uh, 445 B.C. They have not recognized what the real issue. That's just a symptom of the problem. I want to tell you something. We think about the church being broken down and attendance not being back. You know, you go to almost any church in America that is a thriving church, and you look around in that church, and you will find a well-kept building. Now, it's not that well-kept buildings make thriving churches, but the fact is that thriving churches take care of their buildings. They're not broken down. Now, you will find some beautiful churches that don't have anybody attending them. The problem is a spiritual problem. And that's what you need to make sure is right, is the spiritual lives of the people in the church. But I want you to think for just a minute about Nehemiah and this issue that he's facing here. He recognizes that the problem with the walls are not just the physical problem, it's the spiritual problem of the people not following what God desires. He recognizes what the real issue is. And as we go through this book, we're going to see the problem with the people there of Jerusalem. And we're going to learn as we go through this what Nehemiah did and some principles that can help us to restore almost anything. Especially that will help us to restore our spiritual lives and God's church. You know, when you look at Jerusalem, and you'll see this as we read, that... They were not following his statues for worship. 
They didn't care about his city. They were not keeping his sacred law. They were not reading God's word. They were not trying to follow God. And you know, when you don't try to follow God, and you don't get into his word, and you don't pray regularly, and you don't worship God regularly, and you don't take care of his stuff, you're going to find yourself in spiritual disgrace. And that's where God's people were at this time. But Nehemiah recognizes the real issue, and he turns first to God. Now look at verse 4. When, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love and, who, who's, and with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before your, you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. So, you have to reconfirm your commitment to God. You notice if you hear Nehemiah's prayer, he has a sense of remorse. And he has this sense that he has to do something, that he has to take action. He wants God to know that he's committed to do his work. You know, he's reminded here of the covenant God made with his people. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, just before the people of God went in to take the promised land, God told Moses to speak to the people. And this is part of what he says in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But to those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him, that is, those who are unfaithful. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws that I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. Now, you know, as New Testament Christians, we're not under the law. The law was given to teach us what God requires. We're under a covenant of grace. But we're still under a covenant of love with God. And God is going to love His faithful people. Nehemiah recognized that. In fact, in verse 6, he said, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear my prayer. He wants to make sure God is... is working with him. And Nehemiah is confirming that he's committed to do something, to look for, for guidance. You know, you can realize the commitment of somebody when you see how they follow God. I'm sad to say several years ago at a church I was at before I came here, we were going through a drought. It was over in Knoxville, and there was, this was back in the, the early 2000s, and there was a drought and we had a number of people in our church that had horses, worked with horses and cattle, and a couple had farms, and, and that drought was affecting them. They couldn't get hay, and what hay they could get was very expensive. And so they, they came to me one day and said, we'd like to have a special prayer service and pray for rain. We've got to end this drought, so can we do that? I said, sure, I'll preach a message. 
we'll organize the elders and we'll have some prayer and we'll definitely have a service and, and we'll pray a special service. So we, the night came, it was a Sunday night. We all gathered there to pray. I was very disappointed when I got there though. You know why? Not one person brought an umbrella or a raincoat. No real commitment. They didn't believe anything was going to happen. You know, you, if you're committed to God, it's going to come out in your actions. People are going to see it. But look at verse 6. Middle part of verse 6. This is Nehemiah. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. You know, they, were, they weren't following what God had called them to follow. And Nehemiah admits it. And that's the third step, is we have to repent of shortcomings. You know, it's interesting to me that Nehemiah didn't even know that the city was still broken down. And yet when he finds out, he says, God, is part, it's my fault as much as anybody else's. Me and my family. It's our fault. He took ownership. He said, i got to do something. And so he admitted his own sin. You know, that was God's city. That was the center point of God's people, the location of his temple. And maybe Nehemiah's trying to say, you know, I should have known. I should have done something long before now. But that shows that he cared. You know, God has spread churches all over this land. He has. And we should be concerned that the church does not have the attendance it needs. God gave us a responsibility to spread his good news on this earth. And maybe we're just falling short. Maybe we should take ownership of that. We certainly have to be concerned about our church. And if there's an empty seat beside us, we should be praying. We should be thinking, how can I get somebody to fill this seat? If there's a job in the church that's not getting done, we should be thinking, how can I do that or help find somebody that can take care of what needs to be done? You see, we have the responsibility to participate in this restoration. And we first have to recognize our own shortcomings. You ever heard this saying, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. You ever heard that? If you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. So we should be thinking about this. So we have to repent of our shortcomings. There's wisdom in those words. Now look at verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, and even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for your name. You know, part of that comes right out of Leviticus 26.33, where God said to Moses, your people are unfaithful, I'm going to scatter them, I'm going to break them up. But if they're faithful, even if they get scattered, they become faithful again, I'm going to bring them back. And so we have to remember what God desires. Going all the way back to Moses, God informed the people, you've got to be faithful to me. 
And if you're faithful to me, I'm going to love you and I'm going to take care of you. But if you're not faithful to me, then I'm going to scatter you. Somehow it feels like the church is scattered today. We're all over the world. And many churches are struggling to get back. In fact, more are closing than are opening. And so we have to recognize there's a problem. You know, God used Isaiah, the prophet, and around 700 to warn the people what he was going to do. In around 600, he used Jeremiah, the prophet, to warn the people what he was going to do. And before that, God told Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 29, he said, I want you to write a letter to these people. And this is what I want you to say, and this is part of it, not the whole letter. But in verse 10, he says, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, that is, after they've been in exile for 70 years, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. God said, I'm promised I'm going to do something after 70 years. Verse 11, famous verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And usually we stop right there. But you've got to read verse 12. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You know, you talk about restoration, that's the real key, is to seek God with all your heart, to seek Him out. What does that mean to seek God out? It means to seek a relationship with Him, to know Him. How do you do that? Well, you worship Him. You get into His Word and you read and you study. Maybe you find a small group that you can be part of to help you dig deeper into the Word. You pray to Him on a regular basis. You get to know Him. You spend time with Him. That's what it takes. You know, I've talked to a lot of people and I know a lot of that stopped during COVID. People weren't getting into the Word. People weren't studying. People weren't meeting in small groups. It just kind of fell apart. You know, we preached a, I, I preached a sermon series on the book of John earlier this year. And I gave you a reading plan to read certain chapters each week before the sermon. And I can't tell you how many people came to me and said, it was so good to read and study before we came in and heard what you, you were preaching on. There's a reading plan in your newsletter to go along with this. It'll do you good if you come in here and you've read the Scripture and you've studied it all week. And then we preach on it and talk about it. It does us good for us to think about how God wants us to be involved in His church. I pulled up some scriptures that I, God laid on my heart just to, just to think about the church for just a minute. You know, first of all, the church is His body. It's the body of Christ. And the Bible says that as part of that body, we're given the spiritual gifts. We're given the Holy Spirit to live in us. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, it says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you has a part in it. 1 Peter 3, 18 tells us to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2, 15 says we should correctly handle the word of truth, that is the Bible. We should know it, and we should be able to, to, to know how to, to use it. 
Ephesians 6.18 says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. You see, we should be praying continuously. In Matthew 6.17, this is one that really stuck me. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and part of that teaching, he says, When you fast, and I just stopped, that got me, and I thought, when's the last time I fasted? Obviously, it hadn't been recently. You know what I decided I'm going to do? Wednesday, we're having the pizza and then the prayer service afterward. We're going to pray through our whole building and then we're going to come in here and we're going to worship and pray a little bit over our world, especially over the church. I'm going to fast all day Wednesday leading up to that pizza. I'm, I'm asking you to join me. Let's fast and pray for the church. Let's pray for our church. and Let's come together Wednesday night and we'll be... We'll be ready to eat some pizza then, and we'll be ready to pray. In 2 Corinthians 8, 7, I know everybody gets mad when you talk about giving, but it says, see to it that you excel in this grace of giving. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it says, God loves a cheerful giver. We go on down to uh, uh, other verses in the Bible, what I call the one another verses. And there's so many of them in there that, God tells us how to relate to one another, be devoted to one another, accept one another, encourage one another, serve one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, fellowship with one another, and on and on it goes. And maybe one of the most important ones, Hebrews 10, 25 says, do not give up the meeting together. That's the church. That's what we're supposed to be. If you need a list, there it is. Go back and play the sermon over on the website and, and write those things down and think about what God wants me doing to help restore His church. That's what He desires. Well, Nehemiah closes his prayer with this, this cry to God, verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man he's talking about is the king because he's got to get permission from the king to go to Jerusalem and do what he needs to do. He closes, I was cupbearer to the king. He reminds himself of who he was and that he had to get permission to go. So the last part here is request God's help. You know, Nehemiah is asking God to work things out. He doesn't know exactly what he's going to do or even what needs to be done until he gets to Jerusalem. But he's willing to do whatever with God's help. And he knows he needs the favor of his boss, the king, Next week, we'll read chapter 2 and see what happens in that situation. But let's get to the point of chapter 1, that we have to realize the problem. And there's a problem. It's not just for Nehemiah that the wall was broken down. The people are in disgrace because their spiritual side is lacking. That requires some spiritual restoring. And that's what Nehemiah is going to do. But he's going to start with the physical part of that wall. 
Something that people can see. The, the visual that will get the people motivated. So when we get ready to restore, recognize the real issue. Reconfirm your commitment to God. Repent of your shortcomings. Remember what God desires. Request God's help. And you'll be on the track to getting started. Here's our connection. This is the beginning of taking ownership of the problem and realizing your part in the restoring process. You know, the local church is a unit. It's a unit that God wants to use in a specific way in a certain community. And He desires us to spiritually thrive and to build His church right here. And He's got something for us to do. There's a story of a young boy who from the time he grew up in this family, he had always been told, listen, son, when you turn 16, you're going to have a really nice car and you're going to get to keep it in our barn out back. But from very early on, the boy knew there was an old car in that barn and it was covered with a tarp and that was the only place that he would have to park a car. So he was going to have to get rid of that old car they were before they could get his new car and put it in there. But he waited and he kept wondering, when's dad going to get rid of the old car and get my new car? Well, as time grew and he started getting closer to the age of 16, he kept thinking, when's dad going to get the old car out so he can get the new car in? But it didn't happen. And his 16th birthday was coming up. And one night he was at home laying in bed and he heard some noise. It was coming from the old barn. And he heard drills and hammers and all kinds of noise. And so he got up, put his clothes on, and he went out, and there was his dad. And he had the tarp peeled back on that old car, and his head was down in the engine, and he was working and hammering and banging and had wrenches and all kind of stuff. And the boy thought, well, finally, he's going to get rid of that old car so he can bring my new car in. And so he looked up, and his dad looked up at him, and his dad said, here it is, son. This is your car. But we got to restore it. And you got to get to work to restore it. Now, the dad knew what that car was. The son didn't really understand until he took a step back and looked at it. It was faded and had some rust and some places. It definitely needed restoring. And so dad reached out and handed the son a wrench. And he said, go to work. And the boy looked at that car and he said, Dad, that's a 1963 Corvette V8 327. The father knew what that car could be if it was restored. God knows what his church can be if it's restored. But God's handing you a wrench and asking you to go to work. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for men like Nehemiah. Men who weren't perfect, but they recognized their faults. And when they recognized what you wanted them to do, what your desire was, they got busy and they went to work. And they committed their lives to serve you. And Lord, I pray that you help us to realize what it is you want from us here as this church. Especially as we go for the next few weeks and we study this book and see how you worked in the life of Nehemiah. And in the people, your people, and how you restored that city of Jerusalem.
Help us to be a, a, a thriving place where we can bring about some restoration to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, I pray and praise today. Amen.